Hello and welcome to the Bang to Rights podcast. My name is Pete Murray. I'm a lecturer in multimedia journalism here at Manchester Metropolitan University. I'm joined here in the MMU journalism staff room by my colleague Dave Porter. Hello, Dave. Hi, Pete. And by Liz Hannaford. Hello, Liz. Hi there. And Liz is with us for the first time on the podcast because we're going to be looking at a really strongly worded report by the broadcasting regulator Ofcom into the BBC, which found that the corporation runs the risk of becoming irrelevant to young people. And it's in a trend which Ofcom also warns could threaten future funding of the national broadcaster via the licence fee. We'll also be hearing in a moment from the editor of a business magazine based in Liverpool called Ethos, which has built itself a global readership in just two years before we come to all that, though, Dave, um, what's caught your attention? The usual kind of summary, quick roundup of what's in the news. Yeah, what have you seen? Uh, it was a good Section 45 case in Leicester, Mercury. I, I, my first ever job, so to speak, was down there. And it was an, a 17-year-old who had battered almost to death and strangled um, an ex-partner, goaded by his current partner, and the Mercury tried to get uh, the Section 45 lifted. And um, you would have thought seriously of it seriousness of a crime and the age of a defendant nearly 18 it would have succeeded it didn't um because the judge said that uh the chances of uh you know him being able to um rehabilitate himself would have been severely impacted by him being named so just shows you don't always win those arguments yeah and rehabilitation of, of offenders is something that the courts do take quite seriously course, isn't it so yeah. a big consideration mm. for them yeah yeah, yeah so yeah Interesting. Well, I'll I'll put a link to that in the mm. in the show notes, assuming I can find it, because I wasn't able to find last week's okay. one, but I'll Pull see if I can page. find that for you. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So um, I wanted to mention a, a quickly just a story that I read overnight in the Inform blog about the former son-in-law of the form, former Formula One boss, Bernie Eccleston. He's had to drop a challenge to the publishers of the Daily Mail using prote data protection laws. James Stunt dropped the case, not really for strictly legal reasons, but because he'd been declared bankrupt earlier this year and wasn't able to fund the case any longer, going all the way to the European Court of Justice. What's significant for us, really, on the podcast isn't the fact that he was forced to sell a Marc Chagall painting or sell off his prized fine wine collection and a couple of cars, but actually... What it means is that the challenge to the special provisions of UK data protection laws, which allow journalists to keep some of their data secret, won't now go to the European Court. Now, with Brexit looming and the authority of the, the European Court over UK legislation still up in the air anyway, it could be some time before it's clear just how much jurisdiction the court and the European Charter rights will have over domestic law in the coming years, and particularly over issues about privacy and data protection. It's been quite a thorny issue for some time, Dave, hasn't it, with, between, for journalists, really? Yes, I think, you know, we have been... Um, we have some greater powers now in the sense of, you know, we can store information yeah. that's, you know, not directly used. So, um, in, in a way, that is, uh, you know, giving us greater freedom to act. But I think, I mean, it all depends on Brexit, what happens with GDPR, yeah. um, how the Data Protection Act 2018, we're still seeing it early days in many ways, and, and this is a very interesting case for yeah. Stunt. Yeah. So how that plays out, only mm. time will tell. Because I think the, the bit that Stunt was going to challenge was whether the material was going to be used for, for publication, journals. and really that's, you know, that's yeah. the, the, the issue that he sure. was looking at, looking at. But it also, we, we also have to mention the big B word, Brexit and, Brexit and the election. And Lose, uh, what do you think? We're, we're <laughs> <laughs> a prediction, wow. <laughs> but we do know we do know one thing, there is now going to be an election on, yes, on the twelfth of December. Yeah. We have so, a date. So yeah. we'll be going into powwows, won't we, to decide how yeah. we're going to involve our students in coverage of that. We know that some of our students are already 
signed up with some of the big media organisations to report from Count, so that's a fantastic opportunity for them. But we'll be we'll probably staying up all night, won't all night. we, at yeah. some location on Night campus. vlogging and, yeah. and yeah. Yeah, getting as many students involved as possible, really. Yeah. So we covered, we covered the local elections back in May, um, and I was with one of the MA students with Isaac um, covering the Salford Count. We, the, the 2017 election, we covered from a number of the boroughs around Greater Manchester, yeah. didn't we? So we'll hopefully be doing the same kind of thing again. And we'll also be, fingers crossed, we'll be at the central Manchester Count, yes. uh, where they have, what, I think there are about 10 constituencies altogether. Easily, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it'd be great. It's interesting. It's the last week of term, uh, and if it's the twelfth, it's the last, generally the last day when it, you know assignments take place. So it's a very busy week for us and for students, mm. and of course, getting them to vote as well. There's all these yes. issues around. It's going to be very interesting. It is going to be really interesting because there will be a number of first-time voters that we'll be able to speak to and, and pre presumably we'll, we'll talk through the whole process of registering. Yeah, and I'm quite interested to see how active the students' union is and different mm. student societies are in encouraging students yeah. to, to register and vote and how much of that activity we're going to see on campus this time and whether it's... Because we don't normally hear our students talking much about mm. politics around election time do a lot of misunderstandings i've yeah. had students saying i can't vote because i haven't got a car to get me to a polling station it's that those you know basic you know not quite understanding how the, how the process works so i'll be quite interested this time around with so much more at stake that is of direct relevance to the demographic that, that we have at the university whether there will be more interest more discussion about it I think it's down to us as well to, yeah. to generate that uh, and, you know, to do articles on how do you vote, how do you register, the student mm. view, Well, all it was interesting, in, in, on the web, BBC website yesterday, um, they had a link through to um, an article, it was something like, you know, the, the basics to voting mm. or the basics to the election. But I was quite surprised at how basic it was. And it was those qu questions right. about, you know, what is a polling station? Where, how do I get to a polling station? Where, where do I find out how, how, what, what is an election? What does an MP do? It was really, really basic mm. stuff that I guess we sort Secondary of... Secondary school stuff. Yeah, we sort of mm. assume um, everybody knows. But the BBC had obviously decided there was a need to go into that um, basic... Yeah. Yeah. And, and for our students as well, they'll be so they'll be here. It'll be term time, so yes. they, they'll have to register here rather yeah, than at home if they don't live in Manchester, yeah. and uh, or, or apply for a postal vote and all those other things that um, potentially might increase the vote, might decrease the vote if they don't get it right. So, but it's certainly a very very contentious issue because we that the his, we know already that the polls are saying that there's there's a, a big age split mm. between who's who's. Um, likely to vote uh, Labour or Lib Dem and who's likely to vote Conservative in the same way that there was a, a, a generational split really over Brexit. So we're going to get uh, all of those things are going to play out. But do you think students will choose to register in their hometown rather than Manchester? Might they feel as though if they come from a marginal seat, or f for example, that they might yeah. be able to have more they impact might, yeah, definitely, rather than being in yeah, it'll be, safe yeah, there'll be interesting, Manchester? It, interesting kind of tactical voting decisions yeah. going on there just, just in terms of where students register. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Depends how quickly they can get home after the assessments. <laughs> You're still you know, focused on the assessments. If you finish at five, you know, can you get there before ten? Yeah, hey, what exams come first? 
Yeah. Election second. <laughs> well, election second, <laughs> but in, in terms of our coverage, I think there's going to be a fair bit of it over the next couple of weeks. I'm, I'm sure yeah. Bang to Rights, we're going to come back to this probably every week between now and uh, and the 12th of sure. December. So yeah. if you have a view on that, please do let us know. Um, you can tweet us at Rights Bang, whether, it's, uh, how, whether you're going to vote, who you're going to vote for. Well, don't tell us who you're going to vote for, <laughs> but whether you're going to vote and, and certainly whether you're interested in taking part in the coverage that will be on, on the sure. Northern Quota. Um, definitely encourage all our students to, to get involved in any, there in any of that there may be three pizza during the night we, there was the last yeah, time we, that, we, we put food yeah. on for students and I think we even given taxes because what time did you finish Liz about five or six yes yeah. Yeah. So we, we finished we finished the count in central Manchester at uh, at, at about five o'clock. So the last of the results came through at yeah. about four in the morning, I think. It's a very um, long yeah. night. It was it was a long night. Plus it was Ramadan actually. Was, so yes. for a couple of students, it was a particularly uh, long, course, quite difficult yeah. night. So we won't yeah. have that to contend with this time yeah. around. But uh, so anyway. We, we will come back to that. Um, but Liz, we, let's move on to have a, a look at this Ofcom report yeah. that came out. So the big headline was about how the BBC is, Ofcom asking how the BBC can start to appeal to younger listeners because there's a massive drop-off in, in the appeal for younger people. Yeah? Absolutely. I mean, it was there in black and white in the report, the BBC is at risk of losing a generation of younger viewers. It was really quite stark. Um, they found that fewer than half of 16 to 24-year-olds watch a traditional live BBC TV channel during a week, which is, is quite incredible. I think of my own teenage children as well. You know, they, they so rarely... They, they barely even know that programmes actually are made by the BBC. And in this report as well, it's saying that, yes, younger viewers are likely to be familiar and watching things like Peaky Blinders and Doctor Who or whatever, but they'll be watching it on Netflix and it won't oh. even be registering with them that this is a BBC programme funded by the licence fee. So the problem that the BBC has that Ofcom is pointing out in this report is not just a case of, oh yes, you want to you know, get listeners and have younger listeners, but these younger viewers who aren't watching the BBC and don't associate the BBC with these programmes, how are you going to get them to pay the licence fee? And the BBC is totally reliant on the licence fee and the way things stand at the moment. So that's the big, the big fear. It's been a problem for some time, and it's something that people have noted, I guess, for about 10 or 15 yes. years, the fact that people are watching BBC programmes, publicly funded BBC programmes, on other platforms, mm. such as Netflix, as you, as you mentioned. And therefore, is it an option to start getting them to pay part of the, the BBC funding rather than just relying on licence fee payers yeah. traditionally. Yeah, I mean the BBC has to, has to and is, as I, as I understand, doing a lot of, you know, out of the envelope kind of thinking about how they're going to go to fund it because they are kind of more or less resigned to the fact that the licence fee is not going to be their main source of finance because the other problem is competing against um, Netflix, it just has raised the cost of programmes as well because the, the kind of standard of production um, has raised so much and that costs money. So if the BBC is to, com to compete, it has to spend a lot more money. Um, I mean, there was a warning from the um, the Select Committee, what's it called, the Digital Culture, Digital Media, Culture Media Sport, Media Sport. Committee, last week that the BBC's future finances are in absolute dire straits because the licence fee cannot support support the, the, the production costs going forward and part of that is the BBC having to fund the over 75 free licences of mm -hmm. course which doesn't help and that's kind of up for um, criticism as well and whether the BBC has actually negotiated in a particularly effective 
way um, in recent years over its license fee future. But um, yeah, Dave, you're going to Well, it's interesting, yes, because not wanting to hit anybody when they're down, but as a, <laughs> as a, as a newspaper person who, as along with the entire industry, has had some gripes with the way the BBC, mm -hmm. I mean, our you know, business model has been disrupted massively. And the BBC sort of sailed through that. Yeah. And now it finds its own model, business model, if that's the word for the licence fee, now being disrupted and facing the same potential funding problems that, you know, are still affecting newspapers and the digital newsroom. And uh, so, you know, actually nobody's safe. And, no. uh, you know, print industry was massively hit. Now the BBC's having to face up to the every changing landscape yeah and, and the BBC doesn't have that culture of thinking so much about right. the business model either because you've had this cozy license always. fee there yeah. and there's always going to be a license fee isn't there mm. so we don't really have to worry too much about it because you're sort of cocooned in sure. a way it's kind of hit um hit pretty hard but just picking up on that news angle and the and the the, the kind of news environment it's been I guess also about 15 years or so since yeah. Um, the BBC Trust agreed under pressure from the Society of Editors to include more links to local yes. newspapers mm. in yeah. their website, in their news stories on the, on the BBC News website. And Ofcom's That's picked up that again. up as yeah. well. It's yeah. back there again. Right. Ofcom says there's not enough of it. They need to do more. Mm. And they need to publish a transparent strategy about how they're going to do that. Good. And I th that's one of the other things that I wanted to mention to you or ask you about, Liz, because I think the overall tone of this this Ofcom report's a good deal stronger than what I guess the BBC's been used to hitherto, isn't it? Yeah, well, it's part of this, this cosy cocoon yeah. that I was talking about, which is kind of broken open a little bit now, and the BBC mm. suddenly finds itself in this cold, frosty, <laughs> slightly inhospitable <laughs> environment. It's no longer, you know, anti that sort of, you know, matriarchal kind of figure there. It's finding itself having to um, compete and having to, to work in the same kind of harsh environment that, mm. um, you know, the rest of the commercial sector has perhaps had, had more experience of. And it is harsh, and Ofcom isn't pulling any punches in terms of critiquing the BBC. It's interesting in this report as well, it's not just that the fact that it's, it's losing this generation of, of younger viewers, but it also talks about the way the BBC does news as well, yes. and saying that that is quite, is, is, is part of the turn-off with younger viewers as well, and that Brexit has, it hasn't sort of covered itself in glory during the whole Brexit debate, and that what younger viewers are looking for, and I don't know whether, whether we agree or whether we have any, any um, anecdotal evidence of this, is that um, younger viewers like that more um, personalised, gritty kind of investigative and stuff. They, and they find the BBC coverage of, of politics generally a bit dry. Yeah, and, yeah. but he said, mm. she said, which well, I think would be quite Dooley. critical of, yeah, Stacey Dooley and, um, yeah. Which is fine. Yeah. Um, so, um, and, and, you know, and the BBC for, for not tackling head-on and challenging head-on controversial views when they're expressed, you know, mm. climate change, and to treating them as, as, as equivalents, that whole sort of issue. And, and, and Ofcom saying, no, you, you, yes, you can still be impartial, which obviously is, goes to the right, to the, the core of, of BBC news values. Um, Ofcom is saying, yes, you can still be impartial, but you can still, and indeed have a duty as the nation's mm. news provider or whatever, to actually challenge um, controversial or downright incorrect factual news rather than just reporting it and I think the BBC journalists are always quite scared of doing that because you have to be impartial and you have to show 
both minds and then obviously that kind of breaks down a bit or broke down a bit in the in the whole brexit and, and referendum debate it was shown to be and other stations you know the news providers have done that you know i see yeah. robert preston is very he's not afraid to challenge on mm. what the bbc might step back from so they're missing a trick yeah, and obviously, Ofcom has that. I think it's interesting too that Ofcom, at one point, one of their one of their, their kind of box analyses analyses, they they looked at Brexit coverage in the BBC because mm-hmm. they had Ofcom got a lot of complaints from uh, the the pro Brexit side of the the referendum debate to say that the the BBC coverage was skewed, that it was very pro Remain. But they interesting, they say that that the debate has now moved on. That because after Article 50, the issue became how were we going to leave, not whether it was a good thing yeah, or a yeah. bad thing, but how, how was the UK going to leave? And therefore, the BBC was right not to go to a pro-Brexit party on every debate. And I thought that was quite interesting mm. because it, it becomes less of a he said, she said thing and more an opportunity for the BBC to, to take on that kind of educational role about informing the public. And I think... Um, Luckily, from the BBC's point of view, Ofcom came down on their side on that. And they say Ofcom didn't, did not consider the programmes, and they were mostly about Radio 4 programmes, I think, so the mm. Today programme, basically, mm-hmm. that they didn't consider that the programmes raised potentially substantive issues warranting further investigation under the code, therefore decided not to pursue the complaint any further. Good. And it's still said that the BBC has a central role to play yes. in the yeah, life absolutely. of the country, of which I think was, was, was interesting that they did actually or feel the need to say that as well. Um, but yeah, this generational divide in, in media habits, I think is, I mean, it's not just the BBC, and that's, it's going to be really interesting to see how that shakes out in, in years to come. I mean, the BBC's response is that, oh, well, we're diverting a lot of funds into, into streaming and, and, and catch-up, and we're growing our audiences on iPlayer and BBC Sounds, and that's where we see But it's interesting future. because we do have a really good audience at a younger age, you know, I think of CBeebies, mm. like my kids, like yours, probably can wait for television. And then suddenly, children migrate to the bedrooms with their iPads and iPhones mm. and um, commercial plug there. And, uh, <laughs> you know, we never see them because they, you know, they don't come down to watch TV with us because they're watching it, as you say, on catch-up or something. Yeah. So it's, it's why have they not managed to maintain that? Yeah. Would be the... Yeah, because often they are watching BBC content, but, um, yeah. for example, my teenagers... <laughs> would watch it usually via YouTube with clips, right. short clips yep. of, of BBC shows on YouTube. And that's their preferred, that sort of snacking way of, of um, looking at it. And they're, they're only aware that it's BBC because they happen to have two parents who are <laughs> <laughs> very closely aligned um, to the BBC. So um, it's, you know, they're, they're atypical in that respect. You mentioned BBC Sounds, Liz. I mean, a couple of other interesting things in the report. One is that spending on BBC Radio has increased for the first time in, in many, many years. I think they, they say increased by 3% um, compared to 2017-18, um, primarily due to greater funding for Radio 1, Radio 4, local local and national radio channels, which is good news. But they also look at the BBC Sounds app and whether they think that is working, uh, whether it's drowning out competition, which has often been a, a question that's asked of, of these platforms. What's what, what do you make of the Sounds app? Do you think it's working? What do you mean by working? <laughs> In terms of a user experience, I think it's fairly dreadful. Um, you know, you have to be 
quite determined to listen to that particular program in order to find it. I think they've got a lot of problems with that. I think they, when they first launched it as well, there were a lot of bugs in it, and I think they, they lost a lot of sympathy um, and goodwill over that. Yeah. So I think in terms of a like, user experience, I'm, I'm quite shocked at how... It's not very intuitive, is, is it? No, use. it isn't, and and it needs to be because it's in a very competitive competitive market. Um, I mean, I'd be interested to to see what the um, BBC's figures are for this age group, sixteen to twenty four, for its BBC Sounds and for its its podcasts. I'm not sure whether we have that. The, it's not in it's not in this report actually, but it is in a separate report which I'm just flicking through here to find. I'll, I'll put these links onto onto the show notes. But there's a separate Ofcom report that looks at audio specifically, and they do dig down a little bit into the 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 statistics at the BBC. Well. This, I think the Beeb's been very cagey about the stats, yeah. about the number of, of uh, people who are using BBC Sounds, and that's, that may tell its own story, who knows. Um, but we're talking possibly about 600,000, I think, which is way, way down on where it used to be. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I'll, I'll put the links into that, and people can have a look at that. We may return to that, I guess, at some other time and have a, have a look into it, because the, there's also new RAJAR figures that have just come out, which do show that um, younger people are actually listening to traditional radio um, in, I guess, yes, quite large numbers. Yes, I was quite numbers. surprised about yeah, that. Yeah. Yes, I saw those figures as well, and I was quite surprised. Because according to Ofcom, younger listeners are twice as likely to listen to commercial radio. Yes, yeah. So ag- again, we have that recurring problem. The yeah. BBC is not really appealing to, yeah. to younger people in the same way that the commercial other, yeah. other commercial platforms yeah. are, whether they're radio or, or TV. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, well, 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 let's leave that at, at that. I just want to return now to the story that I mentioned at the top of the show, the Liverpool-based business magazine Ethos, which was set up just two years ago with the idea of covering business from an environmental point of view, but which would also look at the more ethical side of, of international business. I met Lucy Chesters, the editor, when she came into MMU a couple of days ago to tell me more. I'm joined here by um, by Lucy Chesters from Ethos Magazine, Liverpool-based Ethos Magazine, and also by Jenna Sloan, one of our, our journalism tutors. Um, Lucy, tell us a little bit about um, about Ethos Magazine, where it came from, and what's the ethos behind it? Yeah, okay, so Ethos Magazine is a quarterly uh, print magazine which takes tells the stories of ethical, sustainable, and value-driven businesses from around the world. So we take a global look at kind of businesses, big and small, local and global. Um, we started the magazine purely to kind of tell these amazing stories of kind of businesses that we were either seeing on our doorstep doing incredible things in the local community to you know massive brands such as Patagonia who are creating sustainable um kind of outdoor wear on a mass scale and kind of how these kind of values unite both big and small businesses and we wanted to promote that you know to people who might have a, a, a grain of an idea who wanted some inspiration and you know to kind of show that they can do it whether you know, regardless of how big they are at the moment, you know. Now, you, you've got a map on the, the kind of cover, the contents pages of, of this ep- this edition, which is what, n- number 10, um, where you've got you've got a map of the world and you've got locations around the world where the stories come from and it's right across right across the globe. Has is, is that always been the intention that it should have a kind of global view of what's going on? 
Yeah, totally. So, I mean, originally when we created it, people were asking us to create um, a local magazine about Liverpool because there's such great stuff going on in Liverpool. But we thought, you know what, these things are happening all over the world. Uh, we crowdfunded our first print runs. So through the crowdfunder, we got, you know, a global audience. So we have subscribers in 30 plus countries from like Australia to America, and, you know, all over the place. So we thought, you know, we knew we wanted it to be global. We make sure that we have as many seams and as many geographical locations as we can get within our magazine format um, and we just think that's really great to kind of draw comparisons between you know how people might be doing business in Silicon Valley compared to like I don't know like Sierra Leone do you know it's just like quite an interesting way to look at the ethics of business around around the world yeah absolutely I mean we were talking just before I hit record here we were talking about how you, your approach is very different but actually you're covering similar kind of ground to what people might find in the Financial Times or The Economist. Because um, certainly The Economist does stuff about kind of business ethics and, and, and globalisation and uh, the environmental impact that businesses can have on, on, on that and so on. But your, your approach is, uh, I don't know, a bit more sort of grassrootsy. Is that right? Would that be fair? I think so. I think it's kind of one of our main things we're trying to do with Ethos is show people that business doesn't have to be boring, it doesn't have to be bland, it doesn't have to be a big sterile office block and a rat race of like the 80s and 90s, which is what you kind of see and what we're kind of conditioned to have grown up with almost. Um, when I first started working, uh, writing about businesses, I'd tell people and I could kind of see them maybe switch off a little bit and, you know, think, oh, business isn't for me, it's not my area of expertise. But actually, we want to remind people that these are just, like, your neighbours, you know, your friends, your, your families who are actually doing what, you know, business is, you know, business involves everybody and, you know, it affects everybody and, you know, regardless of whether it's where you shop, whether how you get from A to B or you know, the music you listen to and how you listen to it, like, everything is run by a business, and so kind of, like, making it more human, kind of, like, the way we tell it, it's not... Um, we don't talk about business in a kind of, like, a news sense, we talk about it in, like, a story sense, so we kind of get to the crux of why that business began. Like, even massive conglomerates started somewhere, and you've got to kind of get to that seed and see how that grew, and I think it's nice to humanise the face, to kind of give business a face and humanise it rather than you know it just be faceless and you know transactional yeah. Jenna can I come to you um, people listening won't know what ethos looks like but can you sort of describe what how the magazine looks the the layout and the graphics and so on because it's very colourful isn't it yeah it really is so um, I met Lucy in the summer when Lara and um, Lara Williams one of the other journalists and cheaters and I went to an independent magazines event in the northern quarter um, and Lucy was one of the speakers there and I was really impressed with ethos and I thought it would really speak to a lot of our students um, and it's yeah it's super colourful they use a very different a very bright design palette there's a lot of colour wash is. Uh, we were talking about that in the session today actually um, it's very creative as well a really nice use of photography um, and it's also quite a small size so it's very easy to put in a bag or a pocket um, so yeah it's got a very um, um, engaging cover as well they use a lot of graphics in their design and 
In terms of the, the kind of outlook of the magazine and the approach towards covering business stories, where, where do you think it sits in, you know, like in comparison with the FT or The Economist or any other business magazine that people might be more familiar with? Yeah, people probably aren't quite as familiar with Ethos as some sort of, um, you know, kind of multinational global name like The Economist or The Financial Times. But there's a huge amount of independent magazines that are flourishing at the moment. Um, and that's because they're produced with small teams. So I know Ethos's team's only four or five people there. It's not hundreds of employees, and it's people who really care and are passionate about what they're doing. So it only comes out quarterly, for example, so there's four issues a year, but that's really common with independent magazine publishing. Um, and they speak to an audience who are very engaged with them. They're engaged on social media as well, so they want to talk to their audience and they want to communicate with their audience in a way that you know bigger magazines can't really. And is that, are you kind of very conscious of your having a social media presence and kind of engaging with an audience kind of beyond Liverpool, beyond the North West, beyond Britain? I think so. Um, I think, um, well, social media is incredibly important for any kind of independent magazine um, purely because I think the world of independent magazines is quite like you don't you're not very aware of it until you're kind of in it or you've got an interest in it so actually social media gets you out there I mean the world at the moment with you know the Greta Thunberg straight for climate um, you know the David Attenborough effect after Blue Planet 2 these are kind of bringing issues like sustainability and secular economy everything to the forefront so actually they're the things that we talk about in you know ethos we talk about businesses trying to like adopt a more secular economy when it comes to their waste you know recycling things like that so actually we can tie it we find that because we're a quarterly magazine and we don't include news social media is incredibly important to us to tie into kind of current affairs of the day if we did that in the magazine it would be dated a lot quicker than it is so social media is like imperative to kind of you know talking on a more regular basis about things that are actually going on which yeah. link to businesses, you know, trying to be better. So you're a couple of years in now. Yeah. Um, what's what comes next? Have you got any plans for for kind of expansion or development, developing the magazine further? Um, we're looking at um, an events um, kind of program of an of an events because that's one thing we've kind of played with in the past, but never fully. Because as uh, Jenna said, we are a small team, so the magazine takes up a lot of our kind of energy. So actually, we're looking at ways that we can actually hold events and, you know, engage more people in Liverpool and the North West, you know, kind of make our stamp a bit more. Even though we're global facing, it would be good to have more of a kind of a connection to the cities that we're actually based in. So, yeah. Yeah. so yeah. OK, well, good luck with all of that. Um, Lucy Chester's uh, Jenna Sloan. Thanks, all. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for coming on Bank to Rights. So Lucy Chester's from uh, from Ethos Magazine, and uh, good luck to them, and, and thanks again to, to Lucy for for coming in. And I think the um, Jenna's uh, magazine students, I think, got a lot from that. But that's just about it for this week. Do remember to subscribe to Bang to Rights. You'll find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. You can also find us on the MMU Northern Quota SoundCloud feed. That's all one word, MMU Northern Quota. You can contact us on Twitter at RightsBang if there's anything from your lectures or from your reading that you'd like us to cover in future editions. But for the moment, thanks, Dave. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Liz. Thank you. And we have been Bang to Rights. Thank you for listening. We'll see you soon.